let the hogs out. Welcome to Hog Planet, the podcast where we weigh, tag, and grade all of the hogs of politics and pop culture and, uh, you know, the goings-on of the world. We try to analyze the hog behavior of it all. And uh, I'm Dan Spaventa, joined, uh, as always, by Sam Lewis. Uh, Sam... uh, do you feel confident uh, in this uh, journey we're about to take? The, the journey being our for, further exploration of self-satiated hog culture in the United States. I'm pretty confident. We've got a couple episodes under our belt. I think we've got a good idea of what's going on. And uh, we're very happy to have a fellow, a guest here who definitely is an expert on this sort of culture. Uh, we have one of the finest uh, English teachers I've ever had, Mr. Zelser. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thanks, Sam. What's up, Dan? Uh, you know, we're we're hanging in here uh, mid-pandemic, as I'm sure you are. Uh, you know, one of the many things we want to talk about is, you know, sort of your experience as an educator uh, in this time. But before we go into that, let's have a little fun with uh, this. Sam pulled this Mary Trump interview. Now, uh, I I I don't know what you're. Mr. Zelser, I don't know what your opinion is on this tendency of every like Trump family member and former, you know, administration ghoul to write a book. Like why, I don't know, do you, do you read these books? Do you ever, like, I, I, it, it, it really, it disturbs me that they, every single one's a bestseller. Yeah, it disturbs me too. Um, I sort of pay attention to the releases of these books, but I haven't read one either because I think it's, it's hoggish behavior. I think it's just a cash grab. You know, I mean, look at Bolton as an example of that. I mean, uh, and uh, I don't think the Mary Trump book is any, is any different. I don't think there's anything dishonest in it. She may have been dishonest about why she published it and when, but I'm sure it's truthful uh, or factual, I should say, but I, yeah, I'm not going to read it. No, I saw someone reading it in the park and I was like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> And rest assured, these books do fi- just fine on their own. Um, Mary Trump's book has actually, which is called, what's it called? Too too much and not enough. Too um, much and never enough. Sorry, yeah. Too much right. and never yeah. enough. And the subtitle is How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Uh, very bestsellery kind of uh, title right there. But um, this book is absolutely a number one bestseller on Amazon already. Uh, on July 17th, 2020, Simon Schuster announced that the book had sold more than 950,000 copies in pre-orders by its publication date, which is a new record. Um, and of course, when this book hit number one on Amazon, it unseated the aforementioned uh, John Bolton book, The Room Where It Happened. So which, I mean, that one really got me because I think John Bolton was really one of the most evil people in that administration. And the idea that he, that he was going to you know that once he had left the administration that he was going to like flip and then all of a sudden be like a whistleblower or something on the on what was going on there was just very heinous to me again it just seems like a naked cash grab and i can't see this mary trump book being that much different yeah i agree and i i think that's um 
Yeah, I think that's true about Bolton too, about that him being one of the most evil people in there, and that's that's really saying something, obviously. Um, yeah, I don't think it's any different either. I think the Mary Trump book is a, is a cash grab. I mean, she must have known he was the most evil or dangerous person in the world for, you know, when he was running for president. She said she didn't take his candidacy seriously, I think. And then she also said she didn't think that people would listen to her. Um, maybe it's just the time wasn't right for the book to sell the way it, it's selling now. Yeah, she actually went to the Oval Office after he was elected, but then in the book, she refers to the day, to the night that he was elected as the worst, like one of the worst days of her life. So it's like, and, and, and in the interview that um, Dan and I watched with George Stephanopoulos, he actually called her on that. And she was like, well, families are actually very complicated. And I was like, I, I don't know. The, the tone of it was just very weird to me because it has this kind of, this is a reckoning moment for our country sort of idea going on behind it. And I'm like, this is really kind of your, you're talking about your family and like how you guys have ruined things for us. I didn't do anything. Like I, I did my best to make sure that things like this wouldn't happen in my life, but I really don't have the much power to stop, you know, your, your uncle from becoming president. It's not really my choice at the end of the day. Exactly. And, uh, Stephanopoulos, uh, George Stephanopoulos, I don't know if we mentioned, he does the interview. Uh, the kind of questions he chooses to ask are uh, at times uh, kind of just, it's, it's so like devoid of substance, like asking, uh, do his children love him? Like do Ivanka right. and Eric uh, Trump and Don, Donald Jr. love their father? It's like, who cares? Right. Who cares? How does that matter to us? What, does their love or lack of love for him impact us at all? Yeah, there's this idea that like she has this insight on how much of a sociopath he is when I would say we all have about a, a, as good an idea as she does at, of how big a sociopath uh, he is. What I think she has is the, the, the intra-family gossip that we don't necessarily have. Um, there was one story she told during the interview about um, her dad, Fred Trump Jr., dumping like a bowl of mashed potatoes on Donald Trump's head, which it's amusing. It's entertaining to hear about these things. But the idea that this is like masquerading as like some kind of advocacy seems wrong to me. It seems almost devoid of like politics like or a political aim. It's like, you know, the, the time to like judge Trump as a person definitely has long passed i mean we've all we all kind of have made up our minds about what we think about him i don't think like these you know these tell-all sort of books are you know have any political aim other than selling uh, it's it's uh it's pretty bleak yeah <clears throat> and like sam says like we don't need to read that book to know that he's you know demented psychotic autocrat who will do anything to <clears throat> i guess sort of uh appease his every women desire uh, at whatever whatever cost just ask any of his victims his many many victims from covid victims to the people of puerto rico right so i'm i don't know i, I watched a bit of the interview i don't think he asked i don't think he asked her about trump's uh the assistance he got from his father fred the financial assistance he got and that would have been sort of like bordering on the political and something that would have been interesting and that it might have debunked this myth that he's this, you know, what did he originally say? Like I borrowed a hundred thousand from my dad, then it became a million later. And now, I, now I've now i heard like, 
tens or hundreds of millions that he just blew through all that all that money. You know, that would have helped to deconstruct that. Well, it would have been preaching to the choir, I guess, unfortunately, but uh, it would have exposed more, uh, greatly more, greatly exposed the myth that he was a self-made guy. Yeah, I I get frustrated with this tendency of journalists to kind of, um, you know, if you're going to sit with her for an hour, <laughs> like maybe, I don't know, maybe try to ask like literally anything. Like there was, I was like watching that, the, the I watched the full hour interview and I was like, I wonder how they even cut that down because it was so like devoid of subs, like substance. Um, maybe you just put the mashed potato story on the main good morning america show <laughs> right yeah she and another aspect of this that i found uh a little too perfect was that she is actually uh, a psychologist by trade and i feel like there's maybe there's a a way that this can kind of bolster her brand on in that field by doing some kind of armchair psychoanalyzing of uh of her you know her uncle um and and yeah i guess it does, it falls in line with all these other Trump folks, but I will say at least like John Bolton did serve in his administration and has maybe some information about from behind the scenes that we couldn't get otherwise, possibly. I'm not going to read the book to find out, but, or if I did, I wouldn't pay for it because I don't need to line John Bolton's pockets. But um, at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't know what more you have than just some juicy family gossip. I don't think you have any like really real insight into this that we couldn't kind of glean anyway like you said uh from her, his victims like um the listeners probably know but uh mr Zelser, you may not know that i work in immigration and uh i i know exactly how annoying and heinous uh this administration is for immigration it gets worse literally every day and uh i care i that's enough to tell me what everything i need to know about him i don't need to hear about it from his niece that doesn't matter to me at all yeah amen that's exactly right yeah, and she's just one of a long line, as one of you guys, I think, intimated, uh, of people who, like, you're expecting something from them, something meaningful from them. Like, even going back to that freak Michael Avenatti, right? Yeah. Um, you know, who are like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, like, hey, yeah, this guy's against Trump. And it, it's so easy to sort of, like, go over to that and sort of support them just because they're against him. And then it turns out that they have nothing. You know, worse than nothing in his case. Yeah, he was just an outright like criminal and sociopath who like defrauded <laughs> his clients. I mean, he was really, uh, yeah, he was really not a good guy for the compassionate left or liberal, you know, sphere to get behind. He's not. He's not on our side. No, he was. He was like Trump light. I mean, really, he was terrible. And and he was being floated as a potential twenty twenty uh, candidate for the yeah. Democrats, which was. Uh, just absurd i mean you know i i love this idea that we need to like match uh or at the time it was like we need to just find someone who's trump but a democrat you know mm, yes dangerous idea <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was what was behind bloomberg this whole time um was the idea that he bloomberg is like a real billionaire or something i was like well that, my problem with trump isn't that he's a like just that he's a billionaire like I, I don't know um, or no that he's a the problem isn't that he's a fake billionaire right this i meant to say yeah, yeah. you're right but um <laughs> if he had if he actually had all that money i would love him <laughs> right yeah exactly exactly if only trump was in an honest trade like finance or something like that <laughs> yeah but i i remember before the election some people were saying you know it's 
it's too bad that Trump can't just run the economy because he's such a loose cannon in all other areas, you know. Um, and I couldn't believe I was even hearing that at the time, you know. Yeah, I remember the lead up uh, to the 2016 election. You would hear people kind of make these light gestures towards like, oh, he's not that bad at, at, at this this one thing. Or, oh, he, he got through that speech without like saying the N word or something. Anything else on this Mary Trump interview? I think we also have to point out she really looks a lot like Donald Trump. <laughs> in the face. She does. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, no one can come out of that family undamaged, right? No. No. And... She looked, she had the look to me of someone who consumes a lot of alcohol, like that sort of bloated face look, you know, I mean, yeah. maybe in, in, you know, improper for me to suggest that. But well, the alcoholism no. uh, was uh, something her father suffered from, right? So it would honestly make sense. True. Yeah. Um, her, and I don't know if we said her father was Donald Trump's uh, alcoholic brother who died pretty young. Um, so that and then she talked a lot about how Fred Trump, the grandfather who we've talked about on this show before, how he was arrested at a Klan rally. Uh, he got his head busted on the concrete uh, yep. outside of it. So, uh, you know, not a good yeah, the guy. Funny, I thought one of the funny things that she said or the ironic things was that like she was just surprised that Fred even like that he was obviously a racist, but that he motivated himself enough to even go out and attend this rally. It's like a lazy racist. She always had him pegged as more of an armchair racist. Armchair racist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let, let's shift gears here, and I, I was very curious to talk to you about coronavirus and being a teacher. And I mean, we're hearing stories, you know, horror stories now of districts, uh, you know, saying they're, they're going to reopen no matter what. Um, some seem to say they're going to, you know, wait and see kind of thing still. I know it's different everywhere, but um, yeah, what, what are you and your colleagues thinking right now, Mr. Zelser, in terms of are we going to be safe if they reopen the schools? Or are they, is the plan to reopen in the fall? Plan is to do some kind of a blended, I can't remember exactly what the board's calling it, some kind of like a, a blended opening where maybe like they'll be shuttling in like half the kids one day, the other half of the kids the next day, uh, something like that. And the kids who, you know, will have some kids in class. And then when the teachers and the students go home, the teachers will teach the other half online and then they'll switch positions the next day. And all of that is, is to, I guess, make transmission of the disease less likely by having fewer kids in the building. Um, but I guess the general, the general feeling among faculty that I've talked to is apprehension and uh, if not outright fear. So fear, fear that the district or whatever, that, that just there's not enough uh, clean, cleaning happening or that that won't be uh, achievable, the amount of cleaning needed to keep everyone uh, safe from the virus? Like, what, what, are, what are the primary concerns? Yeah, um, I mean, speaking for myself, I can't see how there'd be enough cleaning done to, um, to make the building uh, safe or reasonably safe, like whatever, whatever that means these days. 
Um, although we have an incredible, I think, custodial staff. Um, you know, they work like hard as hell. But, um, you know, you're going to get into the HVAC system and, like, clean that out. Um, you know, to what extent is this going to, is this going to go? You know, and um, so, yeah, um, you know, how clean the building will be is, is certainly an issue. Um, and, you know, just the, you know, I also heard that students in New Jersey aren't, aren't required to wear a mask. Teachers will be required to wear a mask, but students, okay. it's optional for students. But doesn't that, you know, negate the, the purpose if not everyone is wearing the masks? I mean, what, 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 what do you think that's about? Yeah, it seems like that to me. I'm not sure how that decision was arrived at. I know there was like a huge sort of like coalition put together of different groups to help form the governor's plan. Um, and I'm not sure whose idea that was, but uh, yeah, it's a terrible, terrible idea. And I wonder about the efficacy of the students um, being forced to wear masks, which they should, I think, in the first place, because um, you know, even that solution, um, I'm sure would see them violate that rule like all the time taking the mask off getting too close to other kids and it puts the burden on the teachers to uh, police that which you 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 have you already have your your lessons and grading and a million things to do uh, and you're supposed to you know tell uh you know a student who doesn't seem to grasp the consequences of not wearing the mask like 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 how does that make you feel? I, I, that's that's a, that's an enormous extra burden for all of you. It's it definitely is. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, for me, and probably for other teachers, um, it, it's going to be a huge burden. But we have become sort of used to having extra work piled on us, you know, and responsibility like year after year, um, you know, because of new initiatives, whatever, new, you know, and um, so. For me, having been doing this for like 20 years, um, you know, I think it's absurd and it's, it's unfair for us to police something like that, definitely. But to me, it's just like, you know, I'm like a burro, you know, they put some more, you know, stuff on my back and I'll, I'll climb up the mountain, but uh, it's, it's not gonna help me as a teacher any, you know, order them to wear the mask, you know, make it official, a mandate that they wear a mask. Take that, you know, take that responsibility off the teacher's hands. No, and even what you were saying previously about the HVAC, um, my, my mom works in a library that's planning to reopen soon, I think in the beginning of August, and it's putting her in this position of having to try to understand how to, you know, talk to the HVAC people to make sure that their correct filters are being put in place. Um, and then, of course, if employees are going to be sit like, let's say there are two employees sitting indoors and nobody's been in the building for a long time, they want to take their masks off. They have are they, if they're in front of an air conditioning vent, is that going to further endanger people? Um, there's just like a lot of guesswork. And it, I guess um, I don't know if you have this sense, but with with what she's been through, it seems like this long process without any kind of structure or idea of what because we still kind of don't know how it fully how it spreads we have an idea but it's still there is a lot of guesswork in terms of um what we know about how it spreads and how we can actually prevent that spread when people start going into like these buildings I, i'm interested to hear what it's like for uh for the school which is a much larger building than just like a public library for a town 
Exactly. Yeah. The school where we first met has, you know, about 12 to 1300 students, you know, going in and out. Um, so what's going to happen? Will there be temperature checks at the door? Do temperature checks really, are they really effective? You know, how effective are they to begin with? Um, you know, what happens if a kid tests positive? Does the whole school, you know, what happens then? The kid is removed. But what about the, the, the students and teacher who was in that classroom where the, the, the kid who tested positive was? You know, I mean, it's, I, I understand and I, as, a t as an educator, I completely sympathize with the fact that not being in school is harmful to a young person's um, development, social, cognitive, and all that. But um, I'm hoping that the year begins at least with distance learning again, even though as, you know, I don't think it's as effective as being in the classroom together. It's certainly a hell of a lot safer. Could you, could you talk about sort of what happened in March and how, like, how quickly did, uh, did your school close and, you know, how, how did, how did that shift work for you? Yeah, my school, I thought, was responsible in, in closing um, at, the, at an appropriate time. Initially, they had said, um, you know, we're going to do this for two weeks and see what happens. Um, and then I think they had said, you know, we're going to, well, now, you know, things are not getting better. So let's back up this distance learning, like extend it to like our spring break. Maybe we can come back after that. And by then, you know, the genie was completely out of the bottle. There was no way we could come back. And so they called it for the year. Um, but, um, you know, I sympathize with them. They were in a difficult, and they still are in a really difficult position. But I thought that they handled that. I thought that they handled that well. Um, and then the impact on the kids, um, it varied from individual to individual and level to level as well. You know, um, like the honors and AP kids um, tended to still be motivated, you know, whether that was self-motivation or parents cracking the whip. Um, in any event, they stayed on top of everything. They stayed on top of their work. But uh, for a kid like, like I was in high school, like really not motivated or interested, those kids totally disappeared. You know, they slipped through the cracks and, um, you know, well, I shouldn't say slipped through the cracks. We tried to pull them out. Um, and a lot of my work, um, especially initially while we were getting adjusted to this was basically, you know, contacting parents, guidance counselors, you know, trying to track down the kids saying, look, I don't want you to fail for, fail for the year. Um, you know, make sure you get your work in. And that took up, boy, it took up a lot of time, a lot of time. I can imagine that also being really emotionally draining for you. So I, I definitely, I, I'm interested to hear about that because I could see how you, like you said, you have um, empathy for someone who in high school is not motivated you know, under the best of circumstances. And this is far from it. And um, I could have predicted what you said about honors and AP kids as a proud uh, former member of that esteemed class when I was in high school, about them being more motivated to, to push through, either because of their own kind of gumption or because of their, uh, you know, their parents coming down on them. But um, I don't know, like how much of an emotional toll did that take on you having to like kind of corral kids where you can empathize with them on the level of not being motivated under the best of circumstances, but also under these circumstances, like how are you supposed to think that the most important thing you should be doing right now is, you know, finishing up your English homework or something? 
Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, I was sort of like a long distance jailer to those kinds of kids. You know, I wanted them to do good time, you know, put in your time, you know, be productive. You know, if it's a prison metaphor, you know, lift weights, read books, do something, you know, at least uh, get the job done. Don't, you know, don't fail. Um, and it was very draining. It really drained, the, drained my battery, you know, to have to worry about those kids and, um, and to spend all that time to sort of like cajole them and try to get them uh, to do, you know, to make, to convince them that this is meaningful work when they didn't think it was meaningful to begin with. And now they have, you know, Xbox available. And, uh, you know, there's so many alternatives uh, these days to, you know, doing, you know, then reading a chapter of The Catcher in the Rye, which, you know, they may hate in the first place. So uh, it was very, it was very tough. I found, I found myself really drained and having to really like sort of like, um, like gather my strength and my efforts into grading and doing all the sort of like teacherly things that I had, that I had to do, you know, more academic stuff, because that was a dream. Would you say it was like more work to do distance learning? I was really surprised at how much work it was. Yeah, I didn't think it would be uh, as much as it was, you know, I don't mind it. I kind of like, like working hard and I'm like a competitive person. I always want to do uh, better than I've done before. And I want my students to do really well. So I'm always competing with myself. So I, I wouldn't have minded, I didn't mind it, but I was surprised to be honest with you. Um, you know, you can't just sort of, even though you're distanced from them, you can't, you can't just be sort of like a ghost or like a disembodied voice who speaks to them once in a while and saying, here, you got a C plus, you know, you, you have to be like, here's the C plus, you know, um, here's what you could have done better. And that, is my normal job when I'm with them face to face and when I'm grading homework at night. But under these circumstances, with the, to continue the metaphor, the drain on my battery, that became really, really hard and really, really, really time consuming. I also wanted to get, you know, just your reaction because, you know, you're, you're in the trenches kind of. What do, you, what do you think of when the Trump administration, uh, you know, the press secretary, uh, you know, Kaylee McEnany said uh, reopening schools is perfectly safe and that quote, this is a quote, science should not stand in the way of this when that's the official thing. <laughs> right. That's an incredible position to take. Right. Um, I happen to be watching that at the time. Usually I don't watch her because she's just so hideous, but I happen to have it on for some reason. And, uh, and you know, like these days it's, I was like, Oh, well that's, effed up but then it's like you know i flipped the channel the gun smoker bonanza you know it's like i this is like de rigueur for these people right i mean it's like what else do you expect but you know to be fair she never lies and so i don't really see that we you know why should we be critical of her didn't she set, tell us she never lies that she would never lie to us so you know who am i to disparage this poor woman you know um but the level of gullibility i guess and the wanting to believe that Trump is right at all costs is really astonishing. I mean, I know we all sort of like tell each other, tell ourselves little lies to get through and to, at least people of conscience, they, we tend to do that, you know, to sort of like survive and be okay with ourselves. But this is, you know, beyond the pale. Yeah, and you start to wonder just like, you know, all right, he, you know, he bung bungled this and, 
you know, de Democrats on the state level also bungled it, uh, you know, in New York and elsewhere. It, it really did. It, COVID was more than more than ever. It was a time, uh, especially in March and April, when it felt like just there is just no leadership at any level anywhere. And I, I, I got really dis dis uh, disenchanted with how um, Andrew Cuomo was uh, really gassed up as like this hero figure because he was on TV a lot. And, and did you get the sense that, um, I don't want to put this, I don't know, people, people, uh, people want to look to like authority to tell them what to do with coronavirus, but it doesn't seem like the authority really knows what to do. Right. And that still doesn't stop people from looking to them for the answers, especially when they become, when they sort of reached a cult status, like Cuomo seemed to have done, you know, um, I know a lot of the ladies in the development where my mom lives, um, you know, they wouldn't miss the Cuomo briefing. It was like a thing to see and a thing to do. You know, Cuomo's on, I'll call you back, you know. And, uh, you know, well, who is he or who was he before the virus? Do you know anything about this guy? I, you, know, you know, probably not, you know. But, um, yeah, he became like a cult figure. That was That was the thing. It was like... You can actively, and I, it was to me, it mirrored, mirrored the rise of Trump. Like, you can actively just like step on a rake and hit your face over and over again and still be just beloved. And it was this time, it was like, oh, like liberals do that too. Like, in a way that, like, I, it was like seeing it happen before my eyes was so, it was very, uh, very, uh, Disillusioning. I don't know what the, what the word. Yeah, is. disturbing, disillusioning. By the way, I love. I think of uh, that rake metaphor. I think of sideshow Bob right away. Yeah. <laughs> things that is becoming more clear to me I, mean, I always knew it but now it's more deeper uh, sort of felt in my bones is that people give lip service to freedom and that idea um, but they really want to be led and I guess it doesn't really matter how intelligent or potentially altruistic the leader or the opposite you know or the other way might be as long as the leader makes them feel good and uh, you know there's all kinds of books that um, predict this kind of behavior. The one I'm thinking of is like Eric Fromm wrote um, Escape from Freedom about how people will, you know, wave the flag and talk about what the flag stands for and how wonderful freedom is, but it's the last thing that they really want. They love the feeling of being part of something and being, you know, and actually being told what to do and how to think. Yeah, on our, on our episode that we recently recorded that isn't out yet, we talked about um, conspiracy theories and you know, a lot of people who are into conspiracy theories, a lot of times they are like those, the most, you know, freedom loving Americans who are um, all about, you know, their like ma maintaining their sovereign citizen status and stuff like that. Not to generalize because anyone's basically anyone is suspect to conspiracy theories, but I think in general it skews towards people who are anti-authoritarian or iconoclastic to some degree. But at the end of the day, a conspiracy theory is, the, and if you believe in it, you're kind of admitting that you believe that someone is driving this thing. Where uh, it's, it's, again, like it's, it's like what you said about um, wanting to be led. I think at the end of the day, these people, 
you know, like take one for example, like the QAnon theory is that Trump is this all powerful, like secret agent, 12th dimensional chess wizard who is going to bring down the deep state and like expose all the pedophiles in the democratic party and a bunch of other nonsense. It's really, it is like this idea that they want to be led and you get it from the people who are like, you don't want our freedom taken away by liberals. And I'm not going to say that everyone has to be fully ideologically consistent all the time because people really aren't. But um, I don't know. I thought it was interesting today seeing that uh, Trump is now telling people that they should wear a mask after, which of course he reverses his opinion a lot, but I'm just, I don't know. I'm interested to see where this goes because up to this point, it's become this big conservative cause celeb to tell people not to wear a mask and all this other stuff. So I don't know. Yeah, that tells you that he's pretty concerned, right? The fact is, I mean, he doesn't give a damn about people one way or another. So the fact that he, oh, well, that their health and well-being as long as they vote for him, right? So the fact that he made that, that switch, which is a sign of weakness, right? Um, you know, uh, that really tells you something. It tells me that he's really concerned about his re-election um, yeah. like prospects, which at this point don't seem good because people are just so fed up with the, um, I mean, people, a lot of people were fed up with him from the start, but even amongst his base, I mean, the amount of like chaos from the economic fallout alone, when you add to that, plus, you know, 100, 120,000 Americans who've died from this so far, um, I think the number is actually higher than that. Then Yeah, it's 140 now, yeah. Plus no stimulus, uh, no second stimulus uh, check, and and they're pulling the uh, – Mitch McConnell's pulling the extra, what is it, $600 that yeah. you get on unemployment. Yeah. So that's a mess. I mean, that's going to ma- – yeah, mass evictions. I mean, there's, there's right. so many consequences of that. I remember hearing somewhere that like one in three Americans are having trouble pay- coming up with, um, with like their mortgage or their rent. I remember here, I think for June, they said like one in three Americans were short on their rent or mortgage payments, which is unbelievable. That's like, it's like a hundred million people. I, I, I can't wrap my head around that. And the, the fact that there's been such inaction, you know, like Dan said, both from more, I would say more so from conservatives, but definitely also from, from liberals in government is just so disheartening to me. It's like, I mean, even from my end, they, they suspended student loan payments, which is one of, one of my biggest expenses, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, they suspended that, and we're not accruing interest. But that runs out soon. It's like September is our is when our next payments coming back. And luckily, I still have a job, and I can pay it. But at the same time, I mean, if I didn't, if I didn't have a job, or if if USCIS starts furloughing people like they're planning to do next month, and I lose my job, then not that I work for USCIS, I work for a law firm, but it might hurt our business. Um, then, and they do, and if they lay me off, then I don't know what I would do if I had to keep paying all this stuff and there's just no help for anyone. I, it's wild to me. I guess pick yourself up by your bootstraps, Sam. I'll go learn to code. Come on. My grand, my grandfather did it and his grandfather before him. Yeah. It's all bullshit. No, but we don't acknowledge the degree to which this, this, this country is like extremely into austerity. And now it's just like shining, uh, shining a light on just how uh, economically precarious things are for uh, the majority of people. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we always kind of knew, I guess we're just, we're understanding it in a more deep, in a more deep way, you know, and people are just getting, getting hammered and like, yeah, like perhaps a hundred million, maybe, you know, maybe more. So one aspect of that austerity is definitely that, um, the way Dan would put it is that government officials tend to see teachers as babysitters. Would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, I kind of think, 
by and large, I think that that's true. I would also add sort of um, perhaps unduly celebrated babysitters for a lot of people. I know um, I'm, I feel really lucky to have the job that I have and the teaching the district that I have, that I have been for, for 20 years. Um, the gratitude that a lot of the students show me is, is so important to me. I mean, um, it, it means the world to me. There are though some parents um, and students though, who, you know, I could tell they see teachers as educated landscapers, like we're the same as the guy who, you know, I'm not saying I'm better than that guy, but I'm a little bit more highly specialized and perhaps more influential or slash important in the, this child's life than, you know, than the landscaper who I want the best for, don't get me wrong, right? But I'm, I, I get the feeling that sometimes that's how we're, we're looked at. You know, like they expect letters of recommendation, these things, well, he'll be happy to do it for you, honey. That, that's, you know, that, you know, well, that's actually something extra that we do because we want to do it. Yeah, I think you wrote mine, actually, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. I did. Yeah. I, no, thank you. I'm going to uh, find it. Um, <laughs> I believe I also received a, a, a very fine Mr. Zelsky. You certainly did. did. You, guys des you guys deserved it. And we uh, and we started off the bat saying that um, I don't know the the gratitude we feel you feel lucky to be in the school district that you teach in, and um, we also feel very lucky that you are in that school district, which is which is why we wanted to have you on because we we really think you're a great person to speak to in this moment and just in general. And um, it's been ten years since Dan and I graduated, which is unbelievable to me. But um, I don't know it's been way too long since we had a nice conversation like this but uh one thing I, another thing i wanted to ask you about because i remember when i was um when i was in your classes um you i think you wrote an article about how the australian open because you're you're a big tennis aficionado yeah. i do not know if pe the listeners know this yet um and you wrote about the australian open and how basically as a result of global warming it's going to become undoable because of the surface temperatures which are topping like 115 you know just high triple digits um temperatures that people were reporting that made it unfeasible and unhealthy to play and one of the things i thought of with this um with this COVID 19 stuff is this is sort of like a microcosm for how global warming is going to affect society as a as a whole because it's a cataclysm it's a, something that affects everybody at least to, to a degree and um there were ways to prevent it, but especially here in the U.S., we're not big on preventative stuff, and we're not big on collective um, on collective action. We're big on the U.S. Is, is a staunchly individualist nation. Uh, I think people more people would wear masks if they thought it would protect themselves, but because the mask mainly protects other people, they're like, "Well, I don't need to do that." And uh, there's there's a lot of that attitude going around, and I it makes me very nervous looking at the response to this because I'm like you know, in 10, 20 years, global warming is going to be a lot worse than this, honestly. Like, this is very bad, but I don't see how, if we're this ill-prepared for something like this, we're going to we're gonna survive global warming. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. As someone who was concerned about this from a, a time, you know, a little before I think other people were as, as concerned. Yeah, about um, I, I first learned about uh, global warming uh, in about 1971 or 72. And even as like a goofy disinterested kid, 
you know, my life really revolved around comic books, pistachio nuts, and, and hockey. Um, when I heard that, I said to myself, oh my God, this is the most important thing that there is. Like, what else is there other than this at, the, at that time, right? And, um, and um, of course, you know, the people just sort of like let it, they, people let it go, big companies uh, move to cover up the extent of the problem, and now, and now here we are, and I agree, it's going to get incredibly worse. Um, it's like, I think you said catastrophic, it's gonna be, yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna be a calamity. Um, and um, yeah, and we're not prepared to, to deal with it. Um, I'm impressed to remember that article though, um, on the Australian, yeah, the fate of the Australian Open. But um, I'm glad I wrote you the letter for that alone. But um, yeah, I, um, it's very hard to, you know, feeling the way I do about this, that I think, you know, untold amounts of lives will be lost. People's lives will be, you know, if not lost, destroyed, or, um, you know, they'll be, they'll be facing unprecedented hardship. It's very hard to sort of present an optimistic, positive outlook to uh, young people. And that's, that's what they need to, that's what they need to hear. You know, they don't want like a nihilist teaching them, you know, and so that's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. Yes. So like as a follow up to that, um, how do you see your role in, because Dan and I have been upfront about it. You were very influential to us in our development as, as adults, um, both after we left college, after we left high school and went to college and then in our, in our professional lives. But um, like, how do you see your role in preparing teenagers for post high school life changing, given that all these things just seem like, even me as I, I'm 28, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I just got married recently. And um, I'm thinking, you know, I, when it comes to like having children and stuff like that, I, I'm, I'm, I, it's hard for me to get over the, you know, the thought of what's the point? Like, what kind of world am I going to be bringing a child into? So I, I don't know, like, how do you handle that as, as a high school teacher where you do play a really, I mean, a, a really important role in shaping kids' worldviews and, and preparing them for what they're, what the, what their lives are going to be like after high school. Yeah, well, thanks for those kind words and congratulations on the marriage, by the way. Um, yeah, there's just so much to do as a teacher, especially it seems as an English teacher. Um, and, you know, from learning skills to sort of like uh, improving uh, your, your sort of like your critical mind, your cognitive mind, sort of like your mental acuity to writing, to, you know, how to write an email, then you try to get them into college, you know, you want to make sure that they're as literate as possible, you know, and uh, that's a huge challenge these days too, it's a whole other topic, you know, um, what's happened to literacy. Um, and then also, right, you want to try to prepare them to sort of deal with this, you know, uh, ever-changing and potentially very dangerous, dangerous world. Um, and I guess, the best way to do that is to sort of somehow try to put them in touch with themselves, uh, maybe in a way that they hadn't been before. And for me, that means reading and understanding, because um, that will help, you know, anyone who reads understands, well, not anyone, I guess there are exceptions, but uh, most people who read, um, 
become enlightened to the fact that, you know, we're all in this together, that other people, you know, as Bob Marley says, when the rain falls, it does not fall on one man's house, right? That we're in this together. And if they can come out with that understanding and skills, of course, um, then I feel like that's, I've done a decent job. Let me ask you this. Um, When I read now, it's, it's almost always nonfiction and it's been that way for a few years. Why should I get back into fiction? Because you were, you know, you were all, you're, you're a master at, uh, I think, uh, conveying what's great about pieces of fiction. Uh, you know, I've seen you do it with many things. So, you know, I, I think I took you, yeah. I, think I took you well, about three classes. You. So I, uh, you know, I, yeah. I know maybe you could answer this for me because I've, I've, I've found that in the last couple of years, I wanted to just get more history and like, you know, theory and, you know, stuff that wasn't fiction. So why, why, why I want to get back into fiction, but like, why should I? Okay. Um, well, I hope I can live up to that, uh, that billing and in answering this question, I think, you know, that and I'm going to fall back on an old bromide to do it, which is, uh, truth is stranger. I'm sorry. Well, no, that's not the old bromide. <laughs> I got that reversed. That was a weird paradoxical approach there. Uh, never mind. Um, I think that, to, you know, to try to be original here then, instead of distort someone else's words, um, I think that fiction distills certain parts of reality um, and it can shed a greater light on truth in that, in that way. It can also make you feel really, really connected. I think I alluded to that before, really connected with other people. And I, I recently started reading fiction by a guy named George Saunders. Oh, he's great. Yeah, I would... I've read him before. Oh, you know Saunders. Uh, Civil okay. Warland in Bad Decline is a short story collection I've read. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I've just, yeah, I've been sort of like hogging, hoggishly everything I could find by him. And um, in the back of one of the books, he gives an interview where he basically says that um, you can through fiction, you can actually experience reality in really strong and powerful ways. Now, that is not a really good answer, I don't think, but because um, I'm not really sure how it works. But, um, you know, I go through phases back and forth also, you know, nonfiction to fiction. Um, but I always return to fiction um, because I think that there are truths in there that are more, I guess, metaphysical, um, but really important that perhaps nonfiction can't quite get at yeah i, I, I don't know if that's no a better I, answer, I think but... you i think you 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 uh got to the core of it there i i know i, I uh, no, i'm no. encouraged to read more fiction now i will read lincoln and the bardo uh finally i just started i'm on page 21 it's in my closet so maybe i'll i'll catch up with you get it out of there good um <laughs> Patreon, where you can find bonus content from this show, including uh, bonus episodes and extended interviews, is uh, patreon.com slash hogplanet, or search hogplanet. Um, uh, Mr. Zelser, thanks so much for coming on the show. You know, I, I know you were, you, you, you listened to the show, like, early on, right? I did. And, uh, you know, that, that meant a lot to us, because we were like, oh, he was like, he was like the first, like, kind of, 
um i don't know person who articulated like vaguely left-wing views that like i ever heard like i, I maybe ever that i heard so you kind of inspired us uh, a little bit once we 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 found we found ourselves more on the left side of uh things i really appreciate kind of the experiences uh i know uh, i and speaking for sam too you know we we, we had some great times uh, in your classes well, thank you so much for that. And um, I, since I believe that the left side is like sort of the open and always questioning side and always trying to make things better side, I take that as a really high compliment. So thank you again, guys. Um, I also, uh, yeah, I enjoyed having you guys in class. You guys were always super smart and really funny. And uh, that helped make my day better. So thanks. Well, thank yeah. you. It means a lot coming from you. Um, is there... Any uh, any organizations or something that you want to plug? Recommendations or yeah, um, to pursue a thread from before, check out George Saunders if you're interested in short fiction. Um, I am. Oh, I recently wrote a. I developed a word game called Quadigories, which I think is really cool. I'm going to try to get that. Uh, hopefully, get some company to take that off my hands. But I have no marketing skills, obviously, because I'm interested in the soul, the, to the detriment of everything else in my life. Um, and the soul and marketing are, are, uh, direct opposites as well. They are right. So it's no wonder I'm inept at, at, at one. I just hope I'm doing a better job with my soul, but I guess I don't find that out till later. Um, and the other thing is, I don't know if you remember, I wrote a comic strip called the daily despot, um, before Trump became president, it was predicting his presidency. I'm working on turning that into a book called the best of the daily despot. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Cool. And I have no idea where you can find those things or how to sell them, but that's what I'm working on. We, I will also uh, bring up one last memory, which is the uh, the book of Yankee Evil, which I believe you. Yes. You to yes, that now has a second. It's a, there's a second edition of Extra Evil, and uh, yeah, it, uh, it I only printed out again, being inept that way, 250 copies. They all sold out, and it got really good critical. Uh, acclaim from some pretty prominent sports writers. Again, you know, that's seems to be my fate. It's going to be, I'll put it all in a time capsule one day and maybe my future self, whatever soul that is, will look down and say, Hey, he did a good job. Well, when Dan and I become podcast millionaires, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put you on the, the list of people we have to repay. So <laughs> there we go. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> and uh, finally, this is hog planet.